I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Rare disease patients are exerting an increasing influence on every aspect of the healthcare continuum, and this includes the area of academic research. The Stanford Medicine X conference, held last month, is billed as an academic conference for everyone. We spoke to Emma Rooney, patient advocate, storyteller, and 2016 MedX e patient delegate, about her experience at MedX, her discussion with other rare disease patients there and the experience rare disease patients have going from being children to adults with a rare disease. Emma, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Danny. I'm a really keen follower of your show, so it's exciting to be on today. We're going to talk about the recent MedX conference at Stanford, your experiences there, and, and what it means to be someone who grew up with a rare disease and is now an adult with one. Let's begin with MedX, which bills itself as an academic conference for everyone. For for listeners who may not be familiar with this conference, what is it, who attends, and, and what does it mean to be an academic conference for everyone? So I just got back from MedX, and this year was the fifth year of the Medicine X conference at Stanford University, and it has a real focus on emerging technology in medicine. Um, but I think from when it started, it's grown to be really about people, technology, uh, and design. And more importantly, how those things uh, get to work together. Um, I kept hearing throughout the conference that it's really more uh, about a relationship in healthcare than it is about science. Um, but for sure, the focus on science is there. And there was this repeated question of how do we not make crap? Um, and it seemed that the answer kept coming back to incorporating everyone. So the, the vision of MedEx, if you look on the website, is it begins by saying it's about creating a culture of health in which everyone is trusted and respected for the expertise they bring. And they use a framework which I think they've been developing over the last couple of years, which is the everyone included framework. Um, but for me, as so somebody attending the conference, it was really something you could see. So. Uh, there's researchers, there's inventors, there's entrepreneurs, uh, there are people from the U.S. military, from the White House, nurses, doctors, medical students, uh, patients, caregivers, uh, and even artists. So I've been to different conferences before, and I kind of have a sprinkling of these things, um, but this was on a, on a different scale. And even within the categories, there was a lot of diversity. So it's not just that the uh, presenters are diverse, but also the organizing team uh, brings in people from lots of different places, uh, and the, obviously the people that are attending are also coming um, from different backgrounds. Uh, you were there as, as an e-patient delegate. What is an e-patient delegate? What, what does that mean? So I don't have a university degree, so getting to attend an academic conference at Stanford was a really cool opportunity. Um, I actually learned about MedEx from following the work of uh, Susanna Fox. Uh, she's a researcher, um, and she did this really neat work at the Pew Research Center uh, looking at health and the Internet 
And it was the first time that I saw in any kind of academic work where there was real value being placed on the rare disease community and what the rare disease community was doing to find answers uh, and build community, especially using social media. So I can say I was engaged patients before reading her work, um, but her research got me online, uh, checking out Twitter and Facebook, which was things I wasn't so interested in before. And getting involved in that way is what led me uh, to the MedEx stage, uh, where Susanna Fox is often presented. And actually, this year she presented as the Chief Technology Officer at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Um, so it's kind of neat to see somebody in her background be in that type of position um, and to know that have somebody in high places to support the rare disease uh, community. So kind of following, you know, all the cool people that were at uh, MedEx, I finally got the courage to apply for the e-patient program to attend a conference. They provide uh, scholarships uh, for the program. And I was rejected the first time, uh, but I tried again and was kind of blown away when I got that email saying uh, that I could attend. And so for some of your listeners that maybe like uh, I used to be, who don't know what the uh, term e-patient means, um, I think right away we think about internet and technology, um, but actually I think more importantly it's about being engaged. And there's uh, lots of uh, e-patients doing this type of work who may not refer to themselves. Um, as that, and, and certainly technology is a part of it because it's uh, facilitated um, the role of patients. But it, it's really uh, e-patients are, are people that uh, take control over their own health and are always looking for ways to share their stories and to support others uh, in that journey. So, do e-patient delegates have a specific role at the conference? Yeah, absolutely. So, I've been to conferences before where. Um, there are uh, patients um, and, you know, might be a few minutes to speak on stage about their experiences. Um, but this is cool because there are, there's definitely keynote speeches by e-patients, but there's also uh, patients like me who are storytellers at the conference and are uh, using social media and blogging and creating art to kind of spread the message of the conference further. Um, there's also e-patients uh, e that are leading panels and part of the organizing um, committee. Um, and so I think that's taking it to a, a different level than we often see. You're a member of the rare disease community. How does the rare disease community fit into MedEx? So MedEx is not a rare disease uh, conference, uh, but one of the principles of the conference is lead as healthcare rebels, which is something that rare disease patients have to do. Um, we have to innovate for ourselves because, it, you know, it's obviously often not financially viable for anyone else to invest in us. Um, and I think another principle that connects the uh, rare disease community that MedEx promotes is to provide a stage for the hardest and most important stories to be told. And they have, for the last five years, um, been including uh, rare disease patients on that stage. So, uh, a great example is actually the coordinator of the e-patient program, Sarah Kachalski, uh, is part of the rare um, community. And having her leadership in designing the e-patient program um, uh, is has, in, has it kind of ensured that there's, the voice of the rare disease community has always been well represented. 
one of the things you did at the conference was meet with and, and interview other rare disease patients. I'd like to talk about your discussion, but for a little context for our listeners, can you talk about your own experience as a rare disease patient? When were you diagnosed? What, what your prognosis was? And, and what the arrival of a therapeutic option meant for you? Sure. So I was born in uh, Cape Town, South Africa in 1983, so a few years ago, um, which is actually the same year uh, as the Orphan Drug Act. Uh, in the United States came into play, um, but obviously that wasn't something that had meant anything to me at that time or to my parents because um, we didn't we didn't need that. And then uh, later, at the age of three, I was uh, first misdiagnosed with having leukemia, um, which was a really difficult experience, probably an understatement uh, for my parents. Um, but eventually, I got the right diagnosis, and that was a type 1 Gaucher disease. And really, the, the thing that changed with that was my parents. It, it, um, I was still the exact same uh, child, and it was a genetic condition, um, and my parents didn't know that they were carriers, uh, so they had to, you know, deal with the around that as well, and also deal with what doctors told them, which wasn't very much, um, but but specifically that there was no treatment available. So then to cut kind of a long story uh, short, um, in 1991, the first treatment options became available for Titan Gaucher disease patients, and a few years later, in 96, I was 13, um, I started enzyme replacement therapy in Canada. Now, it wasn't smooth sailing. Um, once a treatment became available, it required a lot of advocacy, both from the National Gaucher Foundation um, of Canada, but also from my parents uh, as well. So I would say that up until recently, being a rare disease patient for me really meant having Gaucher, and I didn't really see myself as being part of a larger um, community. And, and for people not familiar with Gaucher, this is a, a lysosomal storage disorder? Yeah, correct. So if you could just explain what exactly happens to someone with Gaucher. Well, from my experience, um, it meant that I had a really enlarged uh, summer uh, liver and spleen, uh, which made it difficult uh, to eat uh, full meals. Um, I started at quite a young age to develop bruising all over my body. Um, I later would go on to have bone pain, uh, which meant running was really not an option. Um, very, very tired, which is something that I didn't actually realize until I had access to treatment because I had always lived um, with the condition. So I, when, when you know the doctors would ask about that, I would always say, oh, I feel fine. Um, but of course, my parents uh, had other kids. I have two sisters, and so they knew that uh, I wasn't fine because they could see what a difference there was between what I was going through and what my sisters were going through. Um, and treatment, it didn't reverse these symptoms overnight. Uh, but today, because of treatment, I live a really uh, positive and, and healthy life um, and don't have to deal with a lot of stuff that 
people even 10, 15 years older than me who had access to treatment later or not at all um, face. And, and as a side note, I, I, I should mention, if I'm correct, you're training for a marathon right now? I am. I think I've got six weeks to go. I'm running uh, the New York Marathon, and it's actually for the Running for Rare team, which supports the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. Well, because of the nature of rare diseases, most are genetic and most are without treatment options. I, I think they're, also, they're often accustomed with children. One thing we're seeing with the development of therapies for rare diseases is that many of these children are going on to live lives as adults with things that were once thought of as pediatric diseases. One of the things you spoke to rare disease patients at MedX about is is being adults with a rare disease. What that transitions like from being a patient as a child to an adult and taking responsibility for themselves. What, what did you hear from patients? Yeah, so the rare disease spotlight, for good reason, has focused on children. Uh, rare diseases impact children, and it can be easier for advocacy to get behind saving children. I think uh, even as a, an adult, I can understand that. Uh, we're not all so cute when we get big. Um, but, yeah, therapies is letting rare disease patients live longer. But actually, separate from, from therapies, it's also the quality of care. Because actually, in most cases, we still don't have therapies um, for rare disease patients, but they are living longer. So one e-patient that I spoke to at MedX uh, was Marla Jan DeFesco, and she blogs under uh, Luck Fufus. And she was born, she's like, she said, um, yeah, I was born with a congenital heart defect, not rare. It's the most common birth defect. But I am the first generation to live into adulthood with congenital heart defects. My parents were told they probably shouldn't plan my second birthday, but now I'm 35. So I'm a, in her adult life, she was then diagnosed uh, with, with lupus, which is also not rare, um, but a second immune disorder, Bichette's disease which is a rare disease. So uh, it was kind of interesting to talk to her because um, one of the things, she, she does actually have a specific rare diagnosis, um, but another thing that kind of makes her rare is this combination uh, of conditions that she's experiencing. So regardless of the official um, rare disease definition that's used in the US or in other parts of the world, um, I think that this thing rare means different things to different uh, people. Another person I spoke to uh, at MedEx was Liz Salmi, and she's on Twitter as at, at the, at the Liz Army, and she's living with brain cancer. And she said, I have cancer. Cancer itself is not a rare disease, but I have a brain cancer, and less than 2% of all cancers are brain cancer. So in the cancer space, it's a rare cancer, and that all puts us, and that also puts us, us in the tumor community. And you can then further subdivide from there and there uh, and get even more specific and, and define yourself as being even more rare. And she's shared kind of an interesting story about uh, being in the hospital recently. And uh, she was just walking down the hall and she noticed that there was a beautiful carpet with pink breast cancer um, ribbons on it. And it led down the hall into a space that said on the door that it was an institute for survivors. And one of the things she said, in that moment, she said, wow, there is no living with chronic shitty condition with no treatment, no cure, and no recognition and institute. And there was a few uh, e-patients 
standing together when we said that, and we're like, yeah, mic drop. Um, and that's kind of it. There are some harsh realities of being adult patients. Um, but that being said, we aren't going away. So e-patients like Liz and Marla, they're having to carve out a new way for themselves. And they're insisting on sharing their stories so that people uh, get a, a bigger sense of, of what a rare disease patient looks like. Well, how well equipped is the medical system for someone transitioning from being a pediatric patient with a rare disease to, to being an adult patient? How difficult is it to find doctors who understand what it means to be an adult with a specific rare condition? So I, I don't think actually that this is something specific to rare disease patients. I heard actually lots of uh, patients at medics talking about the transition uh, being a common problem. Um, uh, some, especially rare disease patients at medics, talk about still being seen at children's hospitals because that's where they're specialists. So even if they had really great doctors that understood them and understood them really well, like the actual uh, hospital, the physical environment wasn't really set up anymore uh, for them uh, as, as adult patients. But they also said that they were scared uh, to move anywhere else. Um, and they would stay there as long as they were allowed to. So in my case, I actually didn't move for an adult hospital uh, for that reason of just being comfortable with where I was and knowing the doctors and nurses. I, I took a while to move, and luckily they didn't force me to move quickly. Um, but, but if I think about it, it was probably more difficult for my mom, that transition, because that really signaled that I was now taking control of my own health. And as a teenager, I didn't always make the best um, choices. And she had to recognize that it was no longer her place um, to come to the appointments with me and, uh, you know, tell me how, what to do regarding my health. There, there are, of course, a lot of horror stories out there, um, but in terms of doctors that really just don't understand patients, listen to patients, um, and I don't want to minimize that, uh, but I think for me, having the right diagnosis uh, helped me to get to the right place, and I think without that diagnosis um, would be a very different story. So my healthcare team is a big part of my family. My nurses were invited to my wedding a few years ago. Um, because there's no cure for Gaucher disease, it's a chronic condition, uh, the relationship with my doctor is likely not to end uh, until he retires. Um, I see him more than my family doctor. So we don't really have the option not to work together. We have to be in the same space on a regular basis, and um, we have to kind of make it work. So he certainly understands Grochet uh, because uh, he's a specialist and he has other patients. And uh, Gaucher is rare, but it's not the rarest rare disease, if, that, if I can say that. Yeah, but I think what's really changed and where many doctors may be struggling with dealing with adult patients is in the past, they were really the guardians of all the information. So an example in my family is my parents would probably not have even found out that there was a patient association if the doctors hadn't provided that information. And actually, um, they didn't even know that there was any research happening into Gaucher until they finally were able to take me to Mount Sinai Hospital uh, in New York. Um, and that was the first time a number of years after I'd been diagnosed, which they realized, oh, people are working on this. And doctors said, yeah, there might be treatment available for your daughter. 
um, within her lifetime. And I think that's a really different experience uh, to get all that information from doctors. Until now, when I go to the doctor's office, uh, I, I can say to my doctor, yeah, I read this paper. Can we discuss it? Or I spoke to a patient living in Brazil, and she's doing this. What do you think about that? Or I was just at a conference, and I met a doctor, and he recommended this. And I think that's really um, the, the difference for a lot of, of doctors is they're no longer in control in the same way, and they have to um, have these discussions that they might not be set up or comfortable having with their patients. And I think it's kind of a learning thing, too, because uh, as I become more engaged, I feel like my doctor has become more responsive to my needs um, and not so defensive when I show up with information uh, that he's not aware of. What about social work or cultural issues where disease patients face as they move from being a, a child to an adult? Did, did this come up in the conversations at all? Yeah, so people did definitely talk about um, just not having the research information to know what is going to happen to them after a certain point. And that that was, you know, scary information to kind of live the best life you could live, but knowing that you were kind of setting the course um, for your condition. And uh, so, yeah, that was what many people said, is that there was no handbook for them to follow and how this was going to play out. So we typically know uh, with the development of children kind of what to expect. But for rare disease patients that are reaching new ages, um, it, it's, a, it's a project in the works. Now, one of the interesting points you brought up when we spoke earlier was the fact that we're starting to see a transition in leadership at rare disease organizations from patients or from parents of children with rare diseases to the children themselves stepping into these leadership roles. What do you think the significance of that is? Uh, rare disease parents have provided an incredible model. So I don't think that I would have ever got involved in my rare disease community or in the broader rare disease community if I didn't have uh, my parents kind of showing me how to do that and to demonstrate that it was important um, to advocate. And not just advocating for me, but advocating for the broader um, community. But I, I think it's changing. I think the voice uh, in the advocacy ring isn't just from parents uh, anymore. Um, we saw this at Medex. So you have Terry Marlin, and he was spoke really passionately about his fight for a cure for Duchenne muscular dystrophy for his two sons. And, and we see this a lot, people um, running incredible uh, fundraising campaigns and really making a difference in re research. And often it's parents. But then completely contrasting to that, we had Natalie Abbott, and she's a rare disease patient from the Moby syndrome community. And she actually stood up and said, I'm not one of those who can hope for a cure. What I hope for is a new system that values support, relationships, and learning from peer-to-peer -peer networks in the same way we value the elusive cure. So I think the conversation about what's important to patients will expand with leadership from rare disease patients themselves. And that doesn't mean um, that parents aren't going to continue to play an important role. Uh, but I, I just think it's going to be what we're aiming to achieve is going to expand. And yeah, you're going to see 
more professional patients and make a career out of this work. Um, but you're also going to see people getting involved in different types of organizations than your more traditional patient advocacy organizations, whether it's like leading chats on uh, Twitter or uh, designing things in new ways or um, engaging in, in research in new ways. So in many ways, it's, it's really exciting. And um, yeah, I think it, 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 we have such great examples from such amazing work that's been done by so many parents in the rare disease community. We hear a lot about patient engagement, but this is often in the context of clinical trial designs and the regulatory review process. Medics is focused on research and flattening research hierarchy and embracing the power of patient-generated data. What's the importance of better incorporating patients into academic research? What, what's the takeaway from your experience at the conference in, in that regard? Yeah, when I, I think of academic research, I think of journal articles and some of them that I can understand even about my own disease and some of them that I can't. Um, but at MedEx, it was a bit different from other conferences uh, where research is presented. So people seem to get really excited and start clapping and standing up when presenters could stand on stage and share something that they actually made. So you'd have, you know, I, I was, my eyes were popping out of my head too. You know, patients would stand there and say, yeah, there wasn't a medical device available to help my condition, and so I invented this for myself. And they, they pull out something um, that they, they're attached to uh, and something that's working. And that really was the, the cool factor of this conference, which makes it a bit different from other academic conferences. The, um, the executive director of MedEx, he, he got tweeted a bazillion times for saying, um, it doesn't matter what letters you have after your name, but the experience you bring, or something to that effect. And yeah, I think MedEx definitely says that patient stories have value, even when you don't have a fancy title. But on the other hand, I was really inspired by so many of the patients that were actually leaders in research that then got a science PhD, even when they were facing death to help solve their own medical mysteries. Uh, people, patients who were inventors, that I thought was really impressive. So, the, you know, there's lots of talk about uh, patient involvement, and um, but the, the, the space for patients to be involved has really broadened, and I think we need to see it as being more than just, you know, giving a few for patients to stand on stage and tell a story, um, but really, like, how can they be involved in, in everything they want to be involved in, and, and recognizing that, you know, not everyone wants to be a professional patient, not everyone wants to pursue um, a PhD, uh, but that that possibility is open to us today. Emma Rooney, patient advocate, storyteller, 2016 MedEx e-patient delegate and soon-to-be marathoner. Emma, thanks so much for your time today. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, 
on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>